This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. So my consulting practice helps people make informed decisions about their health care. I do research for them and with them and show them how to understand it. We look at drugs, surgeries, lifestyle changes, alternatives, and with all the evidence of risk and benefit, they make up their minds. That's the easy part. The harder part is helping people change their habits, change their behaviors, adopt a plant-based lifestyle, start exercising, do stress reduction, get some cognitive behavioral therapy, change their thinking, that sort of thing. But I wasn't prepared for the really hard part, which is getting people to talk to their doctors in an assertive way and say, I don't think I should be on this med. I don't think this is helping me. I've looked at the research. They can do the research. They can understand the research. They can make the decision. And yet they're scared of having this conversation with an authority figure. That's why I wanted to bring back Second time Plant Yourself podcast guest, Dustin Rudolph, the plant-based pharmacist. Uh, We talked before in general about the relationship between pharmaceuticals and disease and diet and disease. And I wanted to talk to him about two of the most common conditions that I see in my practice, hypertension and type 2 diabetes. So for each of these conditions, we talked about the different classes of pharmaceutical treatments, their mechanisms of action, their effectiveness, and their safety. And I think if you have type 2 diabetes and or hypertension, or you know someone who does, this conversation can help shake you loose a little bit from thinking that these meds are always and definitely necessary. So without further ado, Dustin Rudolph, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks for having me. It was, a, it was a joy being on the first time. Yeah, well, n- now I got more specific questions. You know, you uh, you sent me your book. I read through it. I've been doing a lot of other studying. And today I wanted to talk with you about two common uh, conditions, um, high blood pressure and type 2 diabetes. Um, so first of all, let's you know, give us a sense of like how prevalent these are, you know, in your, in your practice and in, in your reading, like how big a deal are these two uh, respectively in the United States? Well, they, they definitely are two of the most common chronic uh, medical conditions that are out there. Uh, hypertension or high blood pressure is, is very common, actually up to uh, about a 30% or about a third of people have high blood pressure, diagnosed high blood pressure, and then about another 30, yeah, about 35, 36, 37% have a condition known as prehypertension, which is kind of, uh, you know, you don't have normal blood pressure, but you don't officially have high blood pressure. You're kind of in that gray zone in between. So, you know, if you put those two numbers together, you're looking at, you know, 65, 70% of people out in the United States there have high blood pressure or, or prehypertension. So that's, you know, two out of every three people, basically. That's that's an enormous amount. And the same really goes for diabetes. And as the obesity epidemic rises, so does the diabetes epidemic. And right now there's, uh, well, the, the latest data that, that I have is official data is from 2012, and there's 29 million people that were diagnosed with diabetes in the United States. It's about 9% of the population. And there's a condition known as kind of like blood pressure uh, with prehypertension. There's a condition known as prediabetes. So 
So you're not officially diabetic, but you're kind of on your way. And 86 million people have prediabetes. That's about 37% of adults. So that's that's roughly, you know, if you look at those two numbers, that's about 45 to 50% of the U.S. population that has diabetes or prediabetes. So if, if you really look at these things, two out of every three adults have some form of blood, high blood pressure or blood pressure problem, and about a half of Americans have some sort of diabetes or, or irregular blood glucose problems, and that's just an enormous amount of population. Wow. So that's that's pretty much every, everyone knows a bunch of people who are uh, who are at risk here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If, if not so themselves. Sure. All right, so let's let's take them one at a time. I think that will be the the easiest way to navigate. So let's let's start with uh, with hypertension. First of all, it's a number. It's not a condition. It's not a disease. I mean, what what's the big deal if people have high blood pressure? Yeah, I, I really call it like a, a the, the silent uh, silent killer, the silent silent medical condition because nobody really goes about their day and goes. I have high blood pressure. I can feel it. Like, I know exactly what my numbers are. You actually have to measure it, you know, because people can't feel it. It's not like having a headache or a toothache or something like that. You can't can't feel what your high blood pressure, what your numbers are. So <clears throat> high blood pressure is basically just um, a high amount of pressure uh, forced against your artery walls as your heart pumps. And there's supposed to be a, a normal pressure there about 120 over 80 or less. And so high blood pressure is just anything elevated above that, you know, a little bit elevated above that pre-hypertension or pre-high blood pressure. And then about 140 over um, 90 is where they officially diagnose you uh, in your, if you're that or above. That's um, high blood pressure, officially high blood pressure. And the reason why that's important is because if you have pressures that are elevated, with, with your blood pressure readings for, you know, more than just that one single moment, but over a period of time, days, weeks, months, years, decades, then that really puts you at risk for a lot of different um, things. And one, one of the most scariest things is strokes. Uh, those people who have really high blood pressure are most at risk for strokes and heart attacks, uh, especially strokes. And when you have a stroke, some people die immediately. They don't even make it to the hospital. Uh, some people who do make it to the hospital and make it through it ha are now disabled. They have to learn how to talk again. They have to learn how to walk again, how to dress themselves. All this stuff because the stroke, you know, uh, reduced the amount of or, or stopped the blood flow to their brain, parts of their brain, and then they have, you know, that affect, your brain affects your whole body. So there's heart attacks, strokes, um, and anything, basically, any of the organs that get uh, blood supply, which is basically all your major organs, if, it, if there's high blood pressure, that can lead to organ damage. So, you know, your eye, you can go, you can go blind or partially blind. You don't get the right blood flow or you have problems with high blood pressure. Um, your brain, uh, you can get dementia. Uh, your heart can fail. You can get... Um, uh, peripheral, va peripheral vascular disease, where you have uh, blood flow problems in your extremities, especially your, your legs. 
Um, you can, you know, like I said, you can get strokes. Your kidneys can fail eventually because you're putting a lot of stress on your kidneys. So there's a lot of different things that can go wrong if you have high blood pressure for a long period of time. Gotcha. So one one of the um, the debates, I guess, in between sort of a medical approach and a lifestyle approach is really looking at like what's is high blood pressure itself the disease or is it a symptom? You know, is, is it a marker for the other things that are going wrong? Does the high blood pressure itself contribute? Well, I, I call it a uh, I call it a symptom because you know with with a lot of these diseases, what well what I care about and what I think most patients care about is that are you going to die or are you going to have some kind of disability? hamper you in your lifestyle that impedes you being able to live uh, a long, healthy life. People don't want to be disabled and they don't want to die. And so really high blood pressure, like I said, is a silent killer because you can't, you can't exactly feel that uh, unless it's a rare case and it's so high that it's causing headaches and all kinds of other stuff going on. But for the most part, people can't feel high blood pressure. So it's really a warning sign or a symptom of of a failing cardiovascular system, uh, of a of a heart system, a cardiovascular circulatory system that has a lot of workload on it that um, has really been induced by our diet and our lifestyle, and it can't keep up with that. So I call it a symptom. I mean, some people might you know call it a disease out there, but I really think that it's a symptom, and if you can get on top of it, if you get on top of the symptom, you won't end up with heart disease or with strokes or with some of these other, you know, target end or organ damages like kidney disease or blindness or all these other effects. So I, I call it a uh, symptom, a red flag. A red flag. Okay, which, which brings us to, you know, your area of expertise, ph- pharmacology, so, so that there's a whole bunch, there's a bunch of different classes of drugs that are out there to treat high blood pressure. And the question is, right, if, if the cause is an overworked cardiovascular system due to diet and lifestyle, do these drugs address that cause? Do they simply lower blood pressure in some other way? And how, how effective are they both in lowering blood pressure and in the outcomes that you say people care about, which is not to be disabled, not to die young? Well, the, the medica- medications are there, and, and they are an option. And what I always try to tell people is that, you know, I'm not here to tell you to take a medication or not take a medication. I'm not here to tell you to eat a certain way or not eat a certain way. I think the important thing is to, you know, properly educate and inform our patients, you know, how the medications work, how, you know, maybe diet and lifestyle work. And then that way, when you can see the effectiveness or, or how these approaches work, you can make that decision on, on which path you take or if you want to use both of them or just one or the other or whatever you choose. And when it comes to medications to treat high blood pressure or hypertension, you know, the medications for this medical condition are much like the medications for many medical, chronic medical conditions and chronic diseases. They're there to help you manage the disease. So the key word is manage. And manage the disease means that you still have the disease you're going to have to take these medications for the rest of your life, um, but it will help you 
prevent, hopefully, you know, death or disability, and it will help you manage your blood pressure numbers, uh, so to speak, if, if you choose to take this approach. There, there are quite a few uh, drug classes that are, that, that are used to treat high blood pressure. There's probably at least 10 or 12 of them. But there's really only four or five main ones that, of classes of drugs that they use to treat um, uh, high blood pressure. And I'll kind of run through them here because uh, you had asked, like, how effective are these drugs? Sure. So, yeah. Let's uh, let's let's go through the the classes and then and talk okay. again each one. So the first one is is the one it's called thiazide diuretics, thiazide type diuretics. So that includes some people might have heard of hydrochlorothiazide or the the abbreviation for it is HCTZ. Um, another medication in that group is chlorothaladone. Um, there's chlorothiazide, metolazone. There's couple other medications in this group, but hydrochlorothiazide is the most common one that's used in, in the United States and prescribed in the United States. And these drugs, they're diuretics, so they're basically, some people will just call them their water pill because, you know, sometimes patients don't actually know the name of their drugs that they're on, but they know they're on a water pill, you know, for their blood pressure. And, and basically what they do is they just, they work in the kidney to help you excrete more sodium and more water. Now, wherever sodium goes, water follows. So basically, in your kidney, these drugs help take sodium out of your blood. You know, your blood flow goes to the kidney, and then it filters out water and, and toxic waste and, and electrolytes and stuff like that. And then it reabsorbs some of that back into the bloodstream so that you don't lose, lose everything. Because if you filtered out all your water in your blood, you would have no volume left in your blood. So you, you do need to reabsorb some of it. So the thought is if you give a diuretic to lose extra water out of your blood supply, then that's less volume of blood that your heart has to pump around, and that should lower the pressure, which it does. So that's how these things work. That's how these this class of medication works. And I, whenever I look at success rates for any medication, whether it's a blood pressure pill or a diabetic pill or whatever medication it is, I always try to find, if I can, the absolute risk reduction instead of the relative risk reduction. Oh, you, you just made me shiver. So let's. This is this is one of my the drums that I beat all the time. <laughs> so let's let's talk yeah. about that. What's 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 the, what's the difference and why is it so important? Okay, so relative risk reduction is what you see on TV advertisements and magazine ads and radio ads. It's it's somebody coming on and saying, this new drug to treat your high blood pressure will, you know, lower your chances of a heart attack by, you know, 30% or 40%. Or, or this uh, statin medication will lower your cholesterol and lower your chance of death by, you know, 45%. So that's relative risk reduction. Absolute risk reduction um, is getting down to the raw data. So it, what I like to explain is if I if I come up with a new drug, a new, say, new blood pressure drug, and I'm going to, first of all, I have to do clinical trials because I have to submit this to the FDA so that they can approve my drug so that I can sell my drug. So I'm going to get a bunch of people rounded up, and I'm going to put them on my new drug from, for blood pressure. And I'm going to split these people up into a couple different groups. So one group is going to get the drug, and one group is not going to get the drug. They're going to get like a sugar pill or a placebo. 
and then I'm going to follow them for, let's say, I don't know, a year or five years or whatever it is, I'm, I'm, whatever the study year period is. And I'm going to follow them for that long. And then I'm going to see in the group that got my drug, you know, how many people, you know, uh, suffered a stroke or, or a cardiovascular related death. And then in the placebo group, how many people suffered a stroke or cardiovascular-related death? And after that five years, let's say there was two people in the um, two people out of a hundred in the group that took my drug that had a heart attack or a stroke. And in the <clears throat> in the placebo group, there was four people out of a hundred that had a heart attack or a stroke. So you can see that the drug did work because there was only two people in my group with a drug that had a problem and four people in the placebo group who had a, had a problem. So a relative risk reduction is 50% drop in heart attacks and strokes by taking the drug. And then how they get that is, you know, they take two and two is half of four. So two is half of four, that's 50%. But the problem is, is in that particular example, there's 200 people in the study because there's 100 people in each group. So if you forget about 194 people, and you only look at the six people who had a problem in the study and had a heart attack or a stroke, then you actually get a 50% reduction in heart attacks and strokes by taking this drug. The absolute risk reduction is taking all 200 people into account for the, for the study. So if you take everybody into account, the drop was really only from 4% in the one group that had a heart attack or stroke to 2% in the drug group that had a heart attack or stroke. So you really only have a 2% drop in heart attacks and strokes. And so that's why it's important to understand where these numbers come from and what's being reported. So what you usually see in advertisements on TV and the radio and stuff is relative risk reduction. It's that 50% reduction or 40% reduction. But when it comes to absolute risk reduction, usually it's very small. And when it comes to absolute risk reduction, when it comes to the size of diuretics, that it's about a 3% reduction in cardiovascular death rates on average when they tested these. And this is in, they tested chlorothaladone out of this group, and that was over about a 14-year period. So, you know, do the drugs work? Yes, they definitely work. But, you know, you, you get about a 3% benefit over about a 14-year period. And I don't think a lot of people would realize that, they, that they're only getting a 3% benefit. Right. Now, a 3% benefit might be fine if there was no downside, right? Right. And, and, and it would be fine if you knew, if you absolutely knew that you're going to be in that 3%, but you don't know. So you, you don't know if you're going to be in the 3%. And there's, like, with any drugs, there's always side effects. So with the thiazides, they're actually one of the more safer classes of drugs to take for blood pressure. But they can still cause, you know, electrolyte disturbances, so they cause low potassium levels, low sodium levels. Um, they can actually cause high calcium levels. And they can also raise your blood sugar. And if you have gout, they can increase the risk of gout attacks. Uh, and they've even been shown to increase cholesterol levels and possibly cause erectile dysfunction. So <clears throat> probably the most common with those are the electrolyte disturbances. Uh, but you know, if you're a diabetic, or if you have gout, or or um, or, or problems with your cholesterol already, you know, 
there's other concerns that are there with side effects too with these drugs. Mm -hmm. And just thinking about it, so now if, if I've removed water from my blood, my blood's a teeny bit sludgier, isn't it? It is sludgier. So, yeah, it, it is. Um, now, if you have high blood pressure and you have an overload of fluid anyway that your heart's trying to pump out, you know, having less fluid is probably better for you. But, you know, you you do run into these other problems. Maybe your cholesterol level goes up a little bit or now you have erectile dysfunction because your blood flow is altered as well down there if you're a man. Um, so, you know, it's it's a balancing act. It's can you are you gonna have all these side effects? No, not everybody has all these side effects, but some people do. And you don't get all of the side effects, but some people get more than one. It's just it's just like anything. You don't know what side effects you're going to get, and you don't know if you're going to be in that three percent that benefit from the drug. Gotcha. So before before we move on, I have a question. So I talk to my clients about this stuff sometimes, and I'll and I'll mention like a they all hear, you know, they're all on on Lipitor or, or another statin, and they're all told, um, you know, this will reduce your risk of a heart attack or stroke by thirty six percent, and they're all told that by their doctors, and so. Obviously, they're, they're, the medical profession is trained to speak in terms of re relative risk. As a pharmacist, were you trained to think in terms of absolute risk or, or relative risk? No, it was, it was usually relative risk. It was usually always relative risk. Uh, that's what we hear usually when we're looking at these studies. Uh, the studies almost always report relative risk. Sometimes it's very, very hard to find studies that report absolute risk. And then if they don't report absolute risk, you as the pharmacist or doctor or researcher have to go in and dig through the whole study and try to find all the raw data and calculate it out yourself. And sometimes the raw data is provided and sometimes the raw data is not, not provided at all. So it's, there's no way to even get the absolute risk reduction. Okay. So, so it, it is kind of balanced, uh, a tricky, tricky thing, to, tr tricky subject to... To go at. Yeah. So, so am I being cynical in thinking that it's this is all because it's a it's better for marketing, or is there anyone, any statistician out there, who would argue that relative risk is a useful metric? Well, I I think it's probably due to marketing. I mean, it's a lot easier to market a drug when you say it's forty percent effective as opposed to three. You know, so I I think it comes down to marketing. Um, I, I don't sit around and do statistics all day. You know, I'm not in the research lab, so I don't I don't know if there's a benefit somewhere somehow to relative risk reduction in, in certain cases or not. But if it were up to me, the only thing that I really care about is absolute risk reduction. Gotcha. Okay. So um, what what you've got the diuretics? What's what's another common class? So the next one there's actually two classes, and I kind of kind of group them together. They're called the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or ACE inhibitors, and that's like the lisinopril, enalapril, ramipril, quinapril, captopril, all the, all the prills. And then there is the angiotensin receptor blockers, and those are all the sartans. So like valsartan, losartan, candesartan, omosartan, and basically these, these two classes of drugs, are, they're not normally used together, 
meaning that a patient would not normally be on both of them together, but that's not an impossible thing either. I have seen rare instances where a doctor will put them on both together, but most of the time a patient is put on one or the other, and you usually you start on an ACE inhibitor. And how these drugs work is <clears throat> they basically they dilate the blood vessels or the arteries. And by dilating and making the blood vessels bigger, you get more area for the blood to flow through and, if, and, and less resistance. So if there's more area for the blood to throw through, blood to flow through and, and less resistance, your blood pressure would naturally would come down. And now the ACE inhibitors are usually the, the older class, so they've been around longer. And that's usually what somebody gets started on. So the problem with these drugs, this ACE inhibitor class of drugs, is that about 10 or 20% of people who start on one of these drugs will get a really dry, hacky, just annoying cough that doesn't go away. And it's a side effect of the drug. And if you get that, you're probably going to have to stop the ACE inhibitor, and then your doctor would switch you to the angiotensin receptor blocker, the ARB class of drugs. That's the SARPs. And because they basically, they work the same way. The, the ARBs also dilate the blood vessels or arteri- arterioles, and they, they reduce the resistance, increase the area for the blood to flow through in the blood vessels. And <clears throat> um, they work kind of in hand with the, the kidney, closely with the kidney. So the ARBs, um, you don't get the cough with them, uh, but both of these drug classes can, you know, cause other things that happen. One, a, a rare side effect is angioedema. you got to be real careful with that. That's where you basically your, your face, your lips, your, your tongue, everything swells. It's, it's almost like a, an allergic reaction, and it can be life-threatening. So it's very rare that that would happen, um, usually less than 1% of people. But if it happens, you need to get the ER right away because it's life-threatening. Um, but these drugs, as far as their success rates go, you're looking at about the same, you know, about 1% to 2 2.5% of people actually reduce their risk of death or hospitalization or, or chance of having a stroke. And that's absolute risk reduction. And uh, they haven't studied these over as long of a, of a, of a period as thiazide diuretics. Remember, thiazide diuretics, that absolute risk reduction at 3% was over 14 years. These drugs, they've studied for a less amount of time. So they put them in a study for like four or five years. And they found that you get about a 1% or 2% reduction in, um, in death rates or disability from mm. hypertension. So, so that's not a lot different than the, the rate of what you call a very rare event, the uh, angioedema. Right, right, at 1%. Right. So the, the very, very rare thing is, is about half the rate of the thing you're hoping for. Right, exactly. And, and these drugs in particular, they're, they're use, they can be useful in specific populations like people with diabetes or heart disease um, because in diabetics it, it kind of helps protect the kidney. A little bit, and one of the complications of diabetes is that you get kidney disease and your kidneys eventually will fail. And so these drugs have been shown to, you know, prolong or delay that from happening and and help your kidneys out. And then in heart failure, it's actually been shown to 
help um, reduce death rates over the long period of time with heart heart failure, and it helps kind of remodel and 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 um, uh, fix some of that broken cardiac tissue that surrounds your your heart, your heart muscle. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the 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 appropriate med works best in an extreme populations, right? People who already yeah, have. Yeah. Or for people, I guess, who, I, I mean, I always kind of tell people you, you basically, you have, you know, three or four choices with any disease. And, and one of those choices is to do nothing. And one of those choices is to go the conventional route and use pills and procedures and surgeries. And then the other Choice is basically to make diet and lifestyle changes. So, I guess it's, it would be better than doing nothing and staying on the standard American diet and and not doing anything. But it's certainly not nearly as good as making diet and lifestyle changes. Right. Okay. So I'm I'm a fairly simple person when it comes to sort of understanding the the ins and outs of biology. But when I think of like blood flow, I think of like fluid dynamics. So I think about like a a river that is na- is narrow and the water's rushing rapidly and then it opens up and it's, it looks to me like the water starts going much slower. So these ACE inhibitors and, and angiotensin receptor uh, blocker, uh, aren't, aren't they slowing the blood down by, by dilating the vessels? Well, not really, because your your heart will in a normal person you you would you would pump about five liters around your your whole body, and um, and that's every minute. So you're not necessarily reducing the amount of blood that's flowing around your entire body and getting around there. You're just making it so that it's less work on your heart and less taxing on your blood vessel walls. Is you're you're um, dilating them, so you they have less pressure to work against you know force less force against the blood vessel walls, and um, just like anything, if you if you picture a um, what's a good example maybe a uh, not like a garden hose but I guess if you had a like one of those animal balloons or whatever the yep. skinny balloon yep. and you're trying to flow water through it. And and well, if you have more blood, if you have more blood volume, trying to go in the same space, it's gonna weaken the walls, you know, because you got so much blood volume. So that's where the diuretics come in. Now, if you help kind of loosen up those walls and dilate them a little bit, and have less pressure, like with the ACE inhibitors or the ARBs, now you have less pressure and less force exerted against those walls. So they're not going to wear down as quickly, I guess you could say, over time. So, but you're still you're still getting the same amount of blood through because it's a closed system. Like in a river, it's usually an open system. You know, you're going from the top of the mountain in basically down into the oceans where it's just open everywhere. And in the body, you're kind of working with a closed system. You know. You're pumping water around a, fl- a closed system because the beginning and the end are the same. It just flows in a big circle. Okay, got it. Got it. So, but um, before we go into the next class, though, so if we're back to the to the you know, animal balloon, 
Um, the people who don't have high blood pressure, is it because their blood vessels are always dilated or because they, they manage to pull, they don't have excess water? Like what, what, what's the root cause of the condition? Well, it's usually our diet, our diet and our lifestyle. So it's, it's when years of abuse by basically the foods that we eat is, is very hard on the cardiovascular system. And the reason why is because, you know, we eat a very high-fat, rich diet that's, you know, a lot of fat, a lot of sugar, a lot of oils, and that leads to atherosclerosis or these lining of the blood vessels of these plaques and these cholesterol um, and all this, you know, crap, basically, that shouldn't be in our blood vessels clogging up the system. And so whenever you do that and you have these plaques that line the blood vessels, it starts to make the blood vessels, the walls of the blood vessels, very firm. And, and they're supposed to be flexible and, and able to expand and contract as, as needed, you know, as, as our, like a normal person who doesn't have, doesn't have heart disease or high blood pressure is supposed to expand and contract on these blood vessel walls so that it can, it can absorb um, any extra pressure or, or, or not. You know, like when you go exercise, you're going to have more pressure against those walls. So your, your blood vessel walls need to be able to relax and expand. And in a person with high blood pressure or a person with heart disease, now you have blood vessel walls that are not elastic and are not, are not able to expand and contract as good as they want to. And they're firm and they're rigid. And so they just kind of stay there and they don't move as much. And so then, then you have this force exerted against them. Like, you know, if you're up and walking around or exercising or just going about your life, the, the more activity you do, the more that the blood pressure uh, goes up if, as compared to just laying in bed. If you're just laying in bed, it's going to be very low pressure. But once you get up and even walk around the house, your heart has to pump that around and get that blood around. So if you have firm blood vessel walls, now you've just compounded the situation. You know, now you are at risk for the high blood pressure. And that's from eating all those high-fat foods and and meat and dairy that's full of fat and oils, and it just lines those blood vessels, makes them very rigid, the walls of them very rigid. So so, th so therefore, then, the, um, the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs are just trying to sort of relax those rigid muscles so they, they still they can't still move in and out because they're they're sort of calcified right they're they're encrusted but at least they're a little bit bigger they're now they're now stuck in a relaxed state rather than uh, a constricted state well they they try to undo the damage that we did to them now the, you know they could work a little bit they, you know the average let me find the average i think i have the average right in front of me here but how much they actually lower your blood pressure like the uh, the diuretics, <clears throat> diuretics will lower it about, on average, about 13 over 6 with your numbers. Uh -huh. And ACE and ARBs, ACE inhibitors will lower your blood pressure about 5 over 2. And then ARBs will lower it about 8 over 5. So when I mean, when I mean 8 over 5, it's 8, it drops your first number, your systolic number, by 8 points, and your bottom number by 5 points for the ARBs. Okay. So, so for people, a little bit of, I mean, it, it does work a little bit, but you know, there's 
there's a lot of years of abuse to your blood pressure and your blood or your your blood vessels that that has to overcome, and a medication can only do so much. Right. All right. So let's maybe get cover one more class and then move on to type two diabetes. Yeah. So the other class that I guess would be used uh, more, I guess the the fourth choice would be calcium channel blockers. And those are like amlodipine, uh, dotiazem, verapamil, nifedipine, um, nisoldipine. Maybe some people have heard of those drugs. And basically <clears throat> um, what these drugs do is they, they're calcium channel blockers. So they block calcium from moving you know, in and out of the cell like it needs to. And the reason why that's important is because your your cells, your muscle cells, including and your the cells that line your uh, line the walls of your blood vessels, which are smooth muscle cells, and the muscle and muscle cells in your heart, which are cardiac muscle cells, all of those muscle cells need calcium in them to help contract the muscle. So if you don't have a nice influx and efflux of calcium in and out of the cell to help you contract and relax your muscles, then the muscles don't work very well. And what these do is calcium channel blockers. So they block not all of the calcium, but some of the calcium from, you know, going inside the cell where it needs to be. And when that happens, if you don't have calcium inside your muscle cells, then the muscles can't contract and they can't work properly. So then again, <clears throat> the thought is um, if you prevent uh, calcium from going into the cells so, so that your muscles can't contract, then they'll stay dilated. Those smooth muscles around your blood vessels will stay dilated and loosened up a little bit so that helps your blood vessels stay bigger. So it will reduce the resistance and, and that the blood has to flow again and be easier on your heart that way. Mm-hmm. And that's basically how these work. Okay, so now, the success rates are about the same. You know, you're getting about one and a half to three percent success rates in reducing strokes, and that's over about a five-year period. So you're getting about the same success rates. Gotcha. Now, you said that the the muscles of the heart and the blood vessels need calcium to work properly. So you're taking a drug that prevents your muscles from working properly. Exactly. You're trying to keep your muscles in a more relaxed state so that they don't contract and constrict. Because, mm-hmm. because that's the problem with your blood vessels is they're, they're, they're stiff and they're, and they're constricted, and that forces more resistance against blood flow. Mm-hmm. So you want to try to undo that process. Gotcha. So are, are there any downsides to the calcium channel blockers? Uh, yes. And actually... One of these, one of the downsides with these drugs, is that, and each, there's different nuances with them, because there's some like dotiazem and verapamil that are considered like a subclass of calcium channel blockers. Those are the non-dihydropyridines, and then there's the dihydropyridine portion of the calcium channel blockers. That's like amlodipine, azradipine, all the pines, and the dotiazem and the verapamil. You can't use those in people who have heart failure because it can make their heart failure worse. So you want to be very careful on who you use these in. 
Um, and then verapamil can also cause constipation, and that's usually specific to verapamil uh, that can cause constipation. Some of the other calcium channel blockers, like the dihydroperidines, uh, amlodipine is the most common one, or Norvask. Uh, those can usually cause um, low blood pressure. Sometimes people can drop too low, and they'll have low blood pressure, so they get dizzy, um, you know, maybe feel a little faint. It can also cause headaches and flushing, um, per peripheral edema, so it's swelling in the extremities. And then some, sometimes it's rare, but some people can get gingival hyperplasia, so they can get overgrowth of their gums in their mouth. And those are the, the main side effects of the calcium channel blockers. Hmm. Okay. And before we move on, um, do you see beta blockers used a lot these days? Not as much. Beta blockers are used, but usually after you already put somebody on a diuretic or, or an ACE or an ARB or uh, calcium channel blockers, or if they can't use those drugs because maybe they're in a specific part of the po patient population, like you know, the heart failure patients who can't have those diltiazem or brapamil. Um, so, you know, or if they're allergic to one of these drugs, then sometimes you'll put somebody on a beta blocker. And beta blockers, they don't work quite as well to lower the blood pressure. They work better to basically reduce the heart rate, so reduce the amount of times your heart pumps every minute. And they also um, uh, work to um, basically, re some, some of them have cardiac remodeling features, so the, if if you're in heart failure and you're a chronic heart failure patient, they'll put you on a beta blocker. Or if you've just had a heart attack, they'll put you on a beta blocker because that kind of helps remodel some of the heart tissue. So there's, those are the patient populations that usually benefit from beta blockers. But it works. It does work to lower blood pressure, but not as well as the other classes. Gotcha. So we're, we're roughly, with, with all of these, in the, the 1% to 3% range of, of benefit. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And the beta blockers are the same. They're about a 3% benefit. Okay. So before we move on, comp compare that, you know, you're the, you're the plant-based pharmacist. Compare that to um, a fairly rigorous, comprehensive plant-based diet. Well, if you go on a well-constructed plant-based diet, which is low in fat and also compromised of whole foods, so foods that are as close to nature as you can get. So the fruits, the veggies, the legumes, the whole grains, if you, if you go on that kind of a diet and you get rid of the junk foods and the processed foods and the meats and the dairies and the eggs, then there's a pretty good chance that you might not even have to go on medication or if you are on high blood pressure medication, you can get off of it and still have normal high or normal blood pressure. Uh, John McDougall and Alan Goldhammer out in California there have published the best studies that I've seen at doing this, putting people on this diet and basically reversing their hypertension or their high blood pressure. And, you know, when I talked about the, um, the meds, how they reduce blood pressure by, you know, maybe 8 over 5 or, or 13 over 6 with the diuretics, um, these, these diets here that... McDougall and Goldhammer use, 
they are reducing blood pressure. McDougall had a drop in his blood pressure uh, in his patients, but blood pressure of 17 over 13 and then 18 over 11 in the second study. And Goldhammer had a drop in blood pressure of up to 60 over 17 in some of his patients. But he also did a water-only fast, so he put people on nothing but water and medically supervised them for a period of several days, maybe a week or two. And then he switched them to a whole foods plant-based diet. And so it really goes to show you that once you do this and you take away the cause of the disease, which is the food, then the, then the, the condition or the disease goes away when it comes to high blood pressure. Right. And these guys have also been shown, as you know, to, to reverse heart disease, you know, coronary heart disease and, um, and uh, diabetes and, and all kinds of other chronic diseases. Awesome. Cool. Well, we have less time less left than I thought for, for, di- for diabetes, but maybe we can kind of go through uh, in, a, in a similar fashion. So what, uh, what causes type 2 diabetes? And the people who come to me uh, for counseling and for coaching pretty much assume that it's something that struck them, right? It, it happened to them. Is that, uh, is that accurate? Yeah, a lot of people think that. They think that, oh, it's, it's in my, you know, it's in my genes, I have bad genes, family history of it. Or another thing I hear is, that, oh, it's all those carbs I'm eating. It's all those carbs. And actually, the, I give a talk on diabetes, and my, my main point that I want people to leave with is diabetes is not, type 2 diabetes is not caused by carbs, and it's not genetic. Type 2 diabetes is caused by fat. It's excess fat inside the muscle cells and inside the body. And this fat interferes with insulin and how insulin works in the body because your body needs insulin to utilize the glucose that you're eating. The glucose is just basically the simplest form of a carbohydrate and, and you use glucose to make energy. So your body needs to make energy to live and work and go about its day. So it, ne- it needs insulin to, to get that glucose into the muscle cell to make the energy. And if it can't do that, then you have insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes that develops and all kinds of issues that develop after that. But it's not from the carbs. It's from the excess fat and oils and, and saturated fat, trans fat that's in the diet. Gotcha. And just, and just to be clear, because earlier you mentioned that with the rising obesity epidemic, there's a rising diabetes epidemic. So now you, you've made that connection clear. I have people come to see me who are, they may be chubby, they have a belly, but they're, they're not f- fat, they're not obese. Um, how, does, how does that work? Well, you, you still have the problem of um, this excess fat ending up in the muscle cells, causing insulin resistance. So, you know, I've, I've actually seen people and known people myself that are actually, um, I guess, what you call, quote, skinny type 2 diabetics. And, and it's not that, you know, most people that are type 2 diabetic are overweight or obese, but you, you don't have to be, you know. As long as you have a problem with uh, metabolizing all that fat, um, some of it's going to end up in your muscle cells. And and that's where the problem is. So you can't necessarily see the fat that's stored inside the, of your muscle cells, all this excess fat that's inside your muscle cells. And you can see the fat that's stored on your butt, 
or your thighs or your arms or your chin, but you can't see the stuff that's inside the, the, the microscopic little bitty pit, uh, parts of fat that are inside your muscle cells. And that's the fat that's uh, ruining, basically, the, the, the whole body's process of, of using insulin to get glucose inside the muscle cell and use it to make energy. That's what's impeding that whole process right there. So it's the fat inside the muscle cell. I see. So it's like me having th all my drawers be really messy and packed full, but the but but I don't look like a hoarder because I don't have stacks of magazines in the kitchen on the kitchen counter. Exactly. As long as it's out of sight, out of mind, right? Gotcha. Okay. Yep. So so it's I mean it's really really clear to see the connection between diet and type 2 diabetes if the cause is inter intermyocellular fat, fat inside the muscle cells that's blocking insulin from allowing the glucose in. So then the glucose is stuck in the bloodstream where it goes too high. And so what are the drugs that are used to treat type, type 2 diabetes? And do they deal with the insulin resistance and the fat cells? Or, or are they just dealing with the symptom again of the high blood glucose? Well, there's several classes of drugs to treat diabetes, and none of them actually uh, um, target the root cause of the disease, which is these excess fat, these intermyocellular lipids that are stuck inside the blood or the stuck inside the uh, muscle cells. So none of them target that. That you can only target that by changing your diet and your lifestyle. And so what these various different classes of diabetic drugs do is some of them will help your muscle cells be a little bit more sensitive to insulin so that it uses the insulin that's available a little bit better, but it doesn't make it perfect. Some of them will help you maybe delay absorption of carbohydrates in the gut, and then you get all kinds of uh, GI effects like uh, excess gas and bloatiness and, and uncomfortableness and crampiness down there. Some of the drugs will uh, tell your liver to not dump out uh, glucose into the blood because your liver is like a big storage tank. So what your liver does is that um, when you eat, you're, gonna, you're not going to use every single bit of carbohydrate and food that you consume at that very moment. You're going to have periods of time throughout the day where you're not eating and that you still need energy. You still need nutrients to, to make energy. So it's, your liver stores up any excess glucose inside of it in the form of glycogen, puts a lot of little glucoses together, and it calls it a glycogen. And it stores that glycogen so that when you're not eating, you know, in the middle of the afternoon, that, and you do need some more glucose, it goes, here's some. Here's some from the liver. We'll let it go out into the bloodstream. So there's some drugs that will tell your liver to stop pouring the glucose out into the bloodstream. And then there's the new class of drugs for diabetes, and that's the ones that are advertised on TV now all the time, the Farsiga and Jardiance and um, Invulcana. And they basically make you pee out extra glucose in your urine. And, and glucose should never be in the urine. Uh, your, your urine should never have glucose in it. So um, they're basically making your body do something that's unnatural to basically pee out the glucose instead of it staying in your bloodstream. Gotcha. 
So that that's the, the 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 fact that they're measuring blood glucose that that's the numbers that they're looking at daily and and uh, you know quarterly with the A1C, and that's what leads to this idea that it's carbs and sugar because carbs and sugar is the presenting symptom. Right, because it's really easy to test your blood sugar, and it's fairly easy to go to your doctor and get a, a test for the A1C, like you mentioned, which is basically your 90-day average for your, your blood sugar. But it's not easy at all to test somebody for their, their, the amount of intramyocellular lipids. In fact, I think that I've only seen that in a couple of research studies, and it's, it's not something that's readily available for your doctor to order or for you just to buy some kind of a, a, a kit or a tool you know, over the counter to test in your body. So that's what we really should be testing is the amount of intramyocellular lipids inside of type 2 diabetics because if we can reduce those, then we know that we're getting on top of this disease. Hmm. Do you think if we had that sort of test that then pharmaceutical companies would come out with drugs that would reduce it? Or like, is there always going to be a pharmaceutical blowback that if it's not, if it's not dealing with lifestyle and diet? Well, maybe they would come up with a drug to reduce that, but I don't see how they would really make any headway because if you have a patient who's still eating the standard American diet and consuming all this excess fat, you still have, you know, fuel coming and adding to the fire, even if you're trying to put the fire out. Mm -hmm. So you can try to put the fire out, but if you keep putting fuel on it, it means it's a no-win situation. Right. So how how well do do these drugs work? And first, let's let's talk about what are the outcome measures that we're looking at. Obviously, you know, diabetics want to know that their their numbers are good uh, and are controlled by the meds. But what are what are the long term outcomes? And is there a, a correlation between taking the drugs and having better long term outcomes? Well, the only drug that I that I know of off the top of my head that I have absolute risk reduction numbers for in terms of death and disability is metformin, or glucophage is the brand name. And metformin basically primarily works by telling your liver not to dump glucose back into the bloodstream. It also improves insulin sensitivity at your muscle cells as well. But with metformin, over about a 10-year period, you're going to get anywhere from about a 5 to 10% uh, benefit in terms of absolute risk reduction in uh, disability uh, from diabetes and in preventing death from diabetes. So, you know, a little bit better than those blood pressure meds when treating hypertension, but um, still, you know, it's, it's relatively low when you look at the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. so and, and normally uh, you would ask what, they, what we normally keep track of with using these drugs as far as measurements. Normally it's not your absolute risk reduction in terms of death and disability. Most of the clinicians and the drug companies out there will target lower blood sugar levels and lower A1C levels. So basically we're just we're just looking at what what can we do to lower your numbers, not necessarily what can we do to lower your rates of death and disability due to the disease. Right. So again, the the metaphor that I think of here, and help help me understand if it's if it's accurate or or misguided, like the river one, um, is that so your your cells need glucose in order to function, 
right? That's like one of the only things I remember from high school biology is the Krebs cycle and the the mitochondria, ATP, and it uses uh, glucose. And so if the glucose can't get in or it can't get in sufficiently and and the drugs are basically lowering your blood sugar, they're not lowering your blood sugar by sending it into the cells where it's needed. Aren't your cells still starving for energy? Uh, yes, in a way, and it depends. Some of the classes of drugs, they do help improve insulin uh, resistance, so they help make the insulin work better to get the glucose into the cell. But still, even at their best, they they, they still don't work as well as changing your diet. Mm-hmm. So, you you know, your, your cells are still starving, basically. Gotcha. So metformin is the best of the bunch, and that's been around for a long time, right? That's a that's a generic at this point. Yeah, it's been around for decades. It's been around for probably four, five, six decades. All right. So the new the new ones are doing something. It sounds like uh, quite unnatural. Yeah, um, by trying to make you basically pee out the extra glucose or. Um, yeah, yeah it's very, that, that's the newest class of drugs. Right. In that case, it's definitely not going anywhere useful unless you're you're an ant on the sidewalk, and that's where you decide to pee. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then it creates an environment in your urinary system where it's the you know there's there's a lot of water in your urinary system. Now you're adding a it's and it's a warm environment because inside your body, and now you're adding glucose or sugar in there. So bacteria and yeast love it. Gosh, so they, so sounds like a recipe for making beer. UTIs. Yeah, sounds like a recipe for beer making. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So <laughs> a great, great place to um, uh, form uh, yeast infections and bacterial infections. Gotcha. So I said, you, I know you don't have numbers, uh, exact numbers for the other classes of drugs. You have sort of a general sense if, you know, if metformin is the best of the best at five to 10 percent risk reduction. Where are the others? Or? Um, that I'm not sure of because I haven't actually looked. But I do know the A1C reductions for a lot of these drugs. And usually it's around a half to one percent from most of the drugs. If you get, like, if you actually give a type 2 diabetic insulin, and um, which is the most powerful medication that you can give for a diabetic, uh, you might see a reduction of up to 3% in your A1C. Uh, so if you're, if, you're, if you're doing that, you know, you're, hopefully you would be preventing death and disability or delaying it, and I'm sure that you are by using some of these drugs, but again, you know, it's just testing the numbers. It's not actually testing death and disability rates. And some of those numbers might be out there with reducing death and disability. But like I said, some of these studies are very hard to find that actually report this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them report the reduction in either your blood glucose level or your A1C level. Right. And then, well, it's because we're, we're looking for our keys under the lamppost. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You got yeah. that right. All right, so let's com- quickly compare that to diet. Um, how you know, so, so somebody taking these meds, they're never going to not be type two diabetic, right? So again, this is going to manage the disease. It'll hopefully give them extra years. It'll reduce their symptomology. Is is um, have you seen diet actually work better? Um, yeah, and you're exactly right. The, the medications in, in this case are just like the blood pressure medications where 
if you don't change your diet and lifestyle, you're going to be on them for the rest of your life, and that best will just help you manage the disease. So, you know, again, it's probably better than doing absolutely nothing and continuing to eat the standard American diet. But, you know, if you actually change your diet and your lifestyle to the same approach that treats hypertension, which is the low-fat, whole foods, plant-based diet, um, <clears throat> there, there was actually a, a review study that looked at this. And they looked at, uh, over a 10-year period, uh, different uh, patterns of diet in the low-fat, plant-based diets were more effective than any of the other common diets to treat type 2 diabetes. They lowered the A1C the most, the uh, blood glucose the most, and um, uh, had actually had very good um, compliance rates because uh, people think that this way of eating is so restrictive, but they had just as good or better compliance rates with eating this way because it actually gets results. And you can can come off a lot of your medications uh, when you do this, and you can even uh, prevent the disease itself and, and reverse type 2 diabetes by doing this. I think Dr. Neil Barnard has has published many of the studies showing this, that you can reverse type 2 diabetes this way. Gotcha. But we, we, we wouldn't be um, complete if we didn't talk about the side effects of this diet. Oh, yeah, like, like a lost weight and more energy and... Uh, less heart disease and or no heart disease at all, um, less cancer, all that good stuff. Yeah, because you know, because I have I have doctor friends and some of them are very um, data driven. They're not you know ig ignorant of studies, but they look at it very um, reductionistically. So that okay, well, this study they looked at the Adventists and maybe you know they had a five percent lower risk of something from the ones the vegans. And of course, we're not talking about a low-fat, um, whole food, plant-based diet, but something to some extent possibly approximating it. Um, but when you look at all of those, you know, 3% here, 5% here, 4% there, 9% there, and, and you realize that, that the side effects of, of, the, of that diet is those percentage points for all the other <laughs> conditions. Um, it's a much, you know, it's, it's a hard sell to someone who's just looking at individual dots. But when you look at the big picture, it's pretty compelling, isn't it? It is. It is. And, and the part of the problem is that we're taught, like, from the time we start going to, to school, is to look at just maybe one thing. We have a very narrow focus on, on what we're looking at and what we're studying with um, a different medical intervention, whether it be a pill or a procedure or a surgery. We're just looking at that basically that one thing and, and kind of ignoring all the rest of the things. And that's how kind of trained and thought to think. So it's very hard uh, coming out of that sort of educational style and then into a system that thinks that same way to break apart from that and to, to think big. And that's, that's, that's a hard leap to make for a lot of clinicians. Right. I think, I think of you know, the negative connotations attached to the word panacea. Mm -hmm. Right, a cure-all. Yep, yep. Because it sounds too good to be true. Right. I think that was one of the uh, criteria for the American Cancer Society's Committee on Quackery. If anyone says that their their treatment can solve a lot of problems, then then you know they're a quack. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, fortunately, eating this way and living this way with a whole foods plant-based diet, um, it really has panned out. 
and it, and I think more and more information, more and more validated studies are coming out as time goes on, and it's catching on. Right on. So um, your your book came out, I think, a year year and a half ago now. Um, what are you up to now? Right now, I'm actually buried in pharmacy literature and, and uh, material because I'm studying to take my board certification uh, exams in pharmacy. So I'll be board certified pharmacotherapy specialist, which is I'm in I'm in the hospital arena. So I work in hospital as a clinical pharmacist, and and the direction of medical care is going that way, where you're. The pharmacists need to really become board certified and and become more specialized in what they do, um, because otherwise you're going to get left behind. Gotcha. And so that's what I'm working on now. And how how's the plant based part, or I would I would say the evidence based part, uh, playing in? Are you get are you getting more of a chance to to talk about diet and lifestyle root causes? Yeah, since my book has been coming out, I've. Uh, came out. I have went around and and spoken at several spots, uh, different areas. I'm given a speech at on diabetes actually, on type two diabetes this uh, Saturday at uh, one of our local gyms here. I've been there quite a few times. We always have a good turnout, and um, you know I've gotten around. Uh, been fortunate to go to Hawaii and talk to the Vegetarian Society of Hawaii out there and been up to Michigan and Detroit with the plant-based nutrition support group up there. And, um, of course that Tampa veg fest, Orlando veg fest in Florida here and, uh, a number of other, uh, local and other smaller events. So it is kind of nice to get out there and get this message out there, uh, especially coming from a pharmacist because a lot of people have heard it from, you know, maybe a physician or dietitians and stuff. And there's only a couple of us pharmacists out there who are who are educating others on this lifestyle, and I think it really opens eyes when when it comes from pharmacy too. Yeah. Have you had any opportunities to speak to pharmacy pharmacy students? I have actually. I went to uh, the local university here, University of uh, Southern Florida, and USF over in Tampa there, and I spoke to a big group of their pharmacy students there. And gave them um, this talk that I do on diabetes, type two diabetes, uh, about you know uh, basically I talked about metformin and you know the absolute risk reduction with that, and then I get into the disease process and the intramyocellular lipids and a couple other aspects of type two diabetes, and it was really good, you know, it was well perceived and it really opened some of those students' eyes because we're not really taught about intramyocellular myocellular lipids in school, um, even though it's a root cause of disease, it doesn't really make its way into the curriculum. So when people hear that for the first time, you know, they're, you, you get this deer and headlight look, like, what are you talking about? But as you start to explain it, I think it starts to sink in, especially with students, you know, who are, who are scientifically driven and interested in biology and stuff. They really take to it. That confuses me, though. That, that if they're they hear the the causal mechanism of a disease, and they're deer in the headlights, was there was there an alternative causal mechanism that they were taught, or is that simply not part of the conversation? Well, it's not part of the conversation. So the conversation ends at insulin resistance. 
everybody is taught about insulin resistance, but nobody is taught about what causes insulin, insulin resistance, which is those ex- excess fats inside the muscle cells, those intramyocellular lipids. So the, when the conversation stops at insulin resistance, we just kind of take it for granted that, I mean, I mean, if you don't know this other stuff, we just kind of take it for granted in the medical community that, well, that's the cause of diabetes is insulin resistance. And we don't really know how to make that go away, so we'll just, we have these drugs that can treat it and try to improve it just a little bit, but we don't really have anything that makes it go away. Wow. So we got we got a lot of work ahead of us, huh? We do. Yeah, we have a lot of work ahead of us. But, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are listening up, both patients and clinicians, and I see more and more people... Uh, more and more medical professionals um, taking light to this, so it's it's encouraging, but there's a lot more that has to be taught. Gotcha. Well, I, I can just I can just see the the new um, TV ads. You know, ask your doctor about intramyocellular lipids. Yes, that would be great. I'd love to see that. <laughs> you know, I was mentioning to uh, one of my techs or coworkers or the pharmacist the other day. I go, you know. These hospitals all over the nation, they charge a lot of people to be here. I think a requirement for all these hospitals should be to give a complimentary copy of Forks Over Knives to every patient that comes through the door. Hmm. I think we could afford that. Yeah, right. Yeah, that would, and, uh, yeah that's like asking me to put my, my competitor's literature in my waiting room. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, if you look at it that way. That's true. <laughs> so I mean, you're, you're catching me at a... A cynical incarnation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can try. All right. Well, Dustin Rudolph, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for this wonderful book, The Empty Medicine Cabinet. Thanks for um, all your guidance and for all you do in the world and for taking the time today. I uh, appreciate you having me, Howard. It's been a pleasure. All right. Be well. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 149 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And while you're there, sign up for the email newsletter and you'll get links to articles I write, my weekly TV show, Triangle Be Well, and other flotsam and jetsam that doesn't make it into the podcast. Big thanks to the millions of people who would support this podcast if only they knew it existed, as well as actual podcast patrons, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler. Thank you guys so much for your generous support of this podcast. If you would like to support this show, you can share it in other episodes on social media via email. You can write a review on iTunes or Stitcher, or you can become a patron. And you can do that by pledging a one-time amount or an ongoing donation to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. If you'd like to work with me on health, on getting better, on adopting healthy diet and lifestyle habits, and figuring out if you should be on the meds you're on and uh, all that sort of thing, you can go to my practice website, trianglebewell.com. You can download the Healthcare GPS report, or you can just get in touch with me directly via the podcast. I discovered, to my embarrassment, that I had at some point installed a uh, forms generator on the Plant Yourself website that was collecting people's comments and questions for about four months since January. It's now middle of April. And 
I hadn't seen any of them and I hadn't answered any of them, so I felt very rude. So while I figure out how that thing is supposed to work, if you want to get in touch with me, better to email me, hj at plantyourself.com. And you can have comments, you can have questions. I get uh, on a weekly basis uh, some criticisms for things I say in the podcast, all grist for the mill. And if you'd like to work with me, say that too in in the email and I'll get in touch and we can have a conversation. If you'd like to transition to a plant-based lifestyle and you're not quite sure how, I would invite you to check out the Proteinaholic Transition Course, which is at proteinaholic.com slash W-E-L-L. That's proteinaholic.com slash well. The course is $99, but it's pay what you can. So a bunch of people this week signed up for free, which warms my heart because I assume that means they couldn't have afforded it any other way. And they'll get better and the world will get better. In garden news, everything survived last week's frost. We had a surprise rain shower today and a beautiful rainbow just before dinner time. And you go outside and just everything smells great. So it's a great time to have a garden. It's a great time to live on planet Earth. And my wish for you and for all of us is that we enjoy planet Earth this week. And as always, be well, my friends. 